0: Let's turn our copies of God's Word together to Colossians chapter 2, looking at verses 20 through 23. Let's pray together, asking for God's blessing. Almighty God, in utter helplessness and hopelessness, we cry out for help. Dwell in our midst, fill us with your word and spirit, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, that we may be changed from glory to glory after the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 20. but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last time in part one, we focused on verse 20, seeing that union with Christ in his death brings about for the believer a glorious freedom. That was our focus last time. And in order to appreciate more of the all-sufficiency of Christ, we want to focus now on answering this question. What did our death with Christ, our union with Him in His death, free us from? What did our death with Christ free us from? And we'll answer this question first of all, seeing that the believer's death with Christ means freedom from this worldly obligations. Freedom from this worldly obligations this is in verses 20 and 21. Notice how in verse 20, union with Christ in his death brought freedom from the believer, specifically, as Paul puts it there, you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Well, what are these? What are the elemental spirits of the world? Paul's already mentioned this back in verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, same phrase there, and not according to Christ. Over in Galatians chapter 4, Paul uses this same language to show to the Galatians the insanity of observing circumcision to earn right standing with God. Galatians 4, 3 and 9. We also, when we were children, that is in the days of old covenant Israel, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So what does this show us? Well, the word that Paul uses for elementary principles can also be translated fundamentals, the fundamental principles. More broadly, that has to do with agreeing with something or being in line with something. And it's important that we read the entire phrase there in in verse 20, the elemental spirits of the world. Herman Ritterboss captures what Paul means by world in this negative sense. He says, world is the life context outside of Christ, the human mode of existence in that life context. It is the totality of unredeemed life Dominated by sin, finding its determination in sin outside of Christ. World is the human situation qualified by sin, the domain of demonic powers, the world turned away from God, rebellious and hostile toward Him, depraved mankind that is headed for judgment. So, this is about what Paul is talking about here. This is about principles and lifestyles that are of this world, that are of this sin-cursed world, and how the believer has been freed from such things, united to Christ in his death. Nothing that is of this sin-cursed world can give life. All the practices and thought patterns of this world are weak and worthless fundamentals that do not open the way to heaven for sinners." What Paul is doing here is astonishing. He's saying that if you insist, Colossians, if you, if you insist Church of the Lord Jesus on certain practices, on circumcision or dietary restrictions, any work that you perform, if you insist on your standing with God depending upon something that you do, you are putting yourself in a lifeless, rewardless bondage. Again, Herman Ritterboss is helpful here. These principles of the world bring men under their slavery, can give them no deliverance, but rather carry them ever more deeply into spiritual bondage. Did you hear what he's saying? Not only does the ladder of your self-righteousness not get you closer to heaven, it actually plunges you further into your own condemnation. Your ideas, your performance, your contribution... You are merely piling up the filthy rags of your righteousness before God, making yourself more reprehensible to Him. Earning right standing with God, that's the logic of a sin-cursed world. It is slavery. It gets you nowhere. But thankfully, the death of Christ, the death of Christ paid not just for your sins, but also for all your worthless righteousness. And union with Christ in His death frees you from that impossible task, the bondage of offering a, a God-approved, heaven-opening righteousness that comes from you. You don't belong to the sin-cursed world, believer. You don't belong to its program of self-righteousness any longer. You belong to a new world, to the kingdom of heaven. We saw back in Colossians 1, verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness "...and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son." Or 2 Corinthians 5.17, "...if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come." These old things, this old way of life, does not apply to the believer any longer. You are no longer determined and motivated by this sin-cursed world and all of its futile regulations and habits." The motto of this world is, I must do it for myself. But the motto of the kingdom of heaven is, Christ has done it for me. And you see there at the end of verse 20, how Paul finishes that question. Why do you submit to regulations? If you've been freed from the regulations of this sin-cursed world in Christ's death, why do you submit to those regulations? Paul there uses the passive voice. Why are you regulated? Why do you just sit back and let this happen to you why do you just go along with this program of self-righteousness why do you allow yourself to be put under this worldly ways of living these regulations we've already seen what what Christ has done about such regulations back in verse 14 of chapter 2 how Jesus Christ has canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside Nailing it to the cross. These demands of God's law. Perfect, personal, perpetual, exact and entire obedience. And eternal punishment for any infraction. All of it has been fulfilled for us in Christ's obedience. There is neither any payment for you to make. Nor any righteousness for you to contribute. Jesus paid it all. And union with Christ in his death gives that freedom. And more than that, there is no need for Gentiles to become Jews first in order to be saved. Ephesians 2.11 and following, where Paul shows that those of us who have no family connection with Israel have been grafted into the true Israel of God because Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances." all these regulations, there is no more need for such old covenant practices because Christ has fulfilled them, and union with him frees us from them. Paul mentions there in verse 21 some of the, the specifics of this worldly obligations the believer has been freed from, united with Christ in his death. Verse 21 there, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Similar to what we saw back in verse 16 regarding the specifically the dietary restrictions necessary for entering into the temple. And whether it's the ceremonial obligations that Israel observed or the civil obligations they observed as a state, all, all things that came from God, although they came from God, they were temporary serving to prepare Israel for the coming of Christ. And now that he has come in these last days, this last chapter of history, as we sang this evening, all the types and shadows have been fulfilled and have given way to the substance and fullness that is Christ crucified, raised, and ascended. That's what Paul says back in verse 17 of chapter 2. All these things, all these regulations are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the reality belongs to Christ. So now that Christ has come, the sum and substance, the center of the law, the benefactor of religion, now that He has come, it makes no sense to keep making use of the shadows that communicated His grace in an earlier and lower form. Think of some examples to to make this more concrete. Since Christ is our Passover lamb, whose blood has been applied to us, marking us safe from the visitation of God's condemning wrath. There's no more need for the observance of Passover. Since Christ was circumcised, cut off not in one part of his body, but his entire body cut off, since he suffered the curse of death for his people, male and female, there is no more need for the observance of circumcision. Since Christ has offered the sinless sacrifice of himself once and for all, and how that sacrifice has actually taken away sin. Why would we observe animal sacrifice any longer? Since he is continually presenting the perfect sacrifice of himself in the very presence of God in heaven, there is no need for priests, tabernacle, or temple any longer, which were things which were copies of heaven anyway. Put it this way since the sunshine of God's saving grace has dawned in Jesus Christ, there is no more need to live by the lesser light of the moon about how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 3, how the ministry of the old covenant is a ministry of lesser glory that has faded away, but the ministry of the new covenant is a ministry of far surpassing permanent glory. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the light of his face shone by reflected light, and it has now come to an end. But now that Christ has ascended to heavenly Mount Zion, 2 Corinthians 4.6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, pun fully intended, the ways of the old covenant can't hold a candle to the new and better covenant that is ours in Christ. That leads us secondly to see that the believer's death with Christ means freedom from man-made obligations that break down. Freedom from man-made obligations that break down. Let's look at this in verse 22 again. Making reference to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So here Paul seems to be referring to both sides of the Colossian heresy. Both to the insistence upon old covenant practices as well as the insistence upon man-made ways of living. So ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's the ideas and practices of pagans of the world or the outdated ways of the Old Covenant. Nothing that is earthly can open the pathway to heaven for sinners. Paul uses striking language here. He indicates that making use of earthly practices, whether from Israel or from the other nations, Such practices dry up in significance and value as they're used. There is a law of diminishing return from emptiness to more emptiness, if if that can be possible. The more you depend upon your ideas, yourself, your performance, the worse things get for you. It says Jesus emphasizes in Matthew, referencing Isaiah, "...in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." Man-made regulations are are vanity. They are empty. They get you nowhere. This worldly logic promises everything and delivers nothing. Thankfully, by stark contrast, Jesus Christ is manifest as the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." John 4:13 and 14: "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." John 6:32: "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Paul is emphasizing all these things, that union with Christ in his death frees us from all the empty promises of this sin-cursed world, but also brings us into the abundance of life-giving grace in Jesus Christ. That leads us thirdly to see that the believer's death with Christ means freedom from good-looking worthlessness. Freedom from good-looking worthlessness, and that's in verse 23. There are at least a couple places in this letter where Paul acknowledges that worldly ways of thinking and living Seem to look good, seem to, to sound good. Back in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, when he makes reference there to plausible arguments, they, they have a, an outward show of, of plausibility. And now here in verse 23, making reference to things that have the appearance of wisdom. So it's like in this section, Paul is saying, Listen, I can see how you think it's a good idea to make use of these old ways of life, ways that characterize that are characterized by the world, these great ideas that people come up with, but you are completely missing the fullness of life that is in Jesus Christ. The counterfeit is not the real thing. You see those three examples of this worldly approach to religion there in verse 23. Self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body. These are merely representative. The list could go on. It doesn't matter if it's Worldly excess or worldly retreat and abstinence. It doesn't matter if it's withdrawal or indulgence, nothing has value against the satisfaction of the sinful heart. That's how Paul ends there in verse 23. Regardless of what you do, what you offer, you're never going to change your heart. The orientation, the motivation, the affection, or the standing of your heart will not change one iota based on what you do, based on your performance. You can't change who you are as a sinner in the sight of God. You can do all sorts of things if you put your mind to it, but you'll never prevent your sinful heart from manifesting itself and desiring the satisfaction of its lusts. As I meditated upon this this week, I thought of some, some worthless, some good-looking but worthless counsel that I've come across over the years. Well, maybe the problem is anger. What do you do about anger? Well, count to 10 or count to 100 if you're really angry. If you're angry, say things to yourself. Say serenity and you'll, you, you won't be angry any longer. Look on the bright side. Well, maybe that person, fill in the blank, made up scenario. What about sexual temptation? How do, we, how do we get rid of sexual temptation? Well, you can exercise vigorously. Take a cold shower. Change your diet. Remember, remember, those girls, those guys you look at are someone's daughter or son. Or, ew, that's gross. What about anxiety? What about fear? Stop it. You're, you're overreacting. You need to grow up. Take it easy. Everything will be fine, probably. Now, I drew all this well-meaning, worthless counsel from various places, but sadly, some of it came from Calvinists. Even Calvinists can be functionally Pelagian. Don't miss what Paul is saying here, though. This worldly obligations, again, whether it's from Israel or from the world, from paganism, whether it's from the world or from the church. These things, what we do, cannot stop your sin. Paul doesn't say there in verse 23, what, what you come up with, what you do, that, that has some value as far as it goes. Just, just make sure that you give most of your attention to Jesus, that you fit him in there somewhere. You can take it, um, you can take it from there. No, what he says in verse 23 is, Not that what you come up with is of some value. He says that these things are not of any value. Now, let me ask you this. What does that say? If our practices are not of any value to check the indulgence of our sinful flesh, what does that say about how sinful our hearts are? Sin is not a little weakness. Sin is not ignorance that education can fix. Sin is not a minor inconvenience. Sin is not a problem that a tip or an insight or a trick or a shortcut or a group effort can solve. Sin is an overwhelming power. Sin is an overwhelming power that no sinner, not even a Christian, can overcome or combat on his own. The sinful flesh cannot be managed or dealt with or curbed, much less mortified, by any sinner you and i are no match for the universe of evil in our hearts the corruption of our hearts crave and desire and lust for indulgence its urges are never satisfied when we fail in temptation more often than we care to admit whether in weakness or on purpose our sinful flesh is never satisfied it always wants more Larger Catechism 195, as it, as it um, exposits the, the Lord's Prayer. Larger Catechism 195, read this on your own sometime. It in part shows us our helplessness, saying in part, we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by temptations. Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us. We, even after the pardon of our sins, by reason of our corruption, weakness, and lack of watchfulness, are not only subject to be tempted and forward to expose ourselves to temptations, but also of ourselves unable and unwilling to resist them, to recover out of them, and to improve them, and worthy to be left under the power of them. The bad news is worse than we know. No action, no contemplation, therapy, nothing of this world can ever help the sinful heart. There is only one whose kingdom is not of this world, but of the world of heaven. The flesh is too powerful for the sinner, but not too powerful for the Savior. The only hope for escaping the lordship of the sinful flesh is the lordship of Christ who sets us free from sin's enslaving power. The only hope for fighting and winning against the sinful flesh is the inexhaustible life-giving power of the life-giving Savior. Our remaining corruption demands and is never satisfied, but abiding in Christ is true satisfaction, true Sabbath rest and peace. Just think about these, these biblical affirmations of such. Psalm 17, 15. How unlike those who are of this present age, whose portion is in this age, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So do you see how our sinful lusts always promise and never deliver? It always desires more and is never satisfied. But when you come to Christ, when you abide in Him, the very same power that brought the universe into existence, the very same power that made the lame to walk, the storm to be still, the multitudes to be fed, the demons to be cast out, and the dead to be raised. It is that power that enables you to overcome the lusts of the flesh and to know with the psalmist how to feast on the abundance of God's house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 36, 8 and 9. Here in verse 23, Paul has a, has a wonderful wordplay. There he refers in verse 23 to the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, um, to the flesh being filled or being fulfilled or satisfied. Similar to to the wording Paul has used speaking of Christ up to this point. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or chapter 2, 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in Him. that brings to mind how the apostle john emphasizes the greater grace the greater manifestation of grace that is that has come in jesus christ john 1 14 and following the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ so that all sets up the wonderful word play paul uses here in verse 23 the fullness of grace in christ versus the fulfillment of your sinful flesh put it this way the only way to prevent the fulfillment of your sinful flesh is to drink deeply of the fullness of christ his grace upon grace because you have been filled with grace in Christ. Don't fulfill the sinful urges of your remaining corruption. We saw the bad part in Larger Catechism 195. Listen to the good part after it shows us our helplessness, showing us our abundant help in Christ. We pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh and restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace. And quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may by his providence be kept from being tempted to sin, or if tempted, that by his Spirit we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation, or when fallen, raised again and recovered out of it, and have a sanctified use and improvement thereof, that our sanctification may be perfected, Satan trampled under our feet, And we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever. That is what we pray in deliver us from evil. Let me conclude these poor reflections on the freedom of death with Christ. Herman Bavink, in his wonderful works of God, has a helpful way of putting this as he concludes his chapter on justification. He says, As children of the heavenly Father, believers are not anxious about what they shall eat and what they shall drink. With what they shall be clothed, for he knows that they have need of all these things. They do not gather treasures upon earth, but have their treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupts, and where thieves do not break in or steal. As unknown, they are nevertheless known. As dying, they live. As chastened, they are not killed. As sorrowful, always rejoicing. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. They do not torment themselves with the taste, not touch, not attitude but regard every creation of God as good and accept it with gratitude. They remain and they work in the same calling in which they are called and are not slaves of men, but of Christ alone. They see in the trials which fall to them not a punishment, but a chastisement and token of God's love. They are free over against all creatures because nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus their Lord. Indeed, all things are theirs, because they are Christ's, and all things must work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The believer who is justified in Christ is the freest creature in the world, at least so it ought to be. Are we living in that freedom? Herman Ritterboss talks about how this present evil age is a situation from which Christ has snatched his people snatched away into freedom, the freedom of life before God in the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. From Galatians 1-4, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age by implication to the age to come according to the will of our God and Father. Walter Marshall, an expert on sanctification, says this, Believers should not act for life, but from life. See the difference? We act from life, not to earn life. We must act as those who are not procuring life by our works, but as such who have already received and derived life from Christ, and act from the power and virtue received from Him. And so it appears that Roman Catholics and all others that think to justify, purify, and sanctify, and save themselves by any of their own works, rites, or ceremonies do walk in a worldly way as those that are without any present interest in Christ and shall never attain to holiness or happiness until they learn a better way of religion, the way of Christ, and receiving of His fullness. Singler Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, makes this observation about this section in Colossians. One has the, the impression here that some of the Colossians had not found life in the Spirit to be all they had expected. In particular, they seem to have been taken aback by the continuing influence of sin in their lives. They were therefore fruitful soil for the cultivation of a heretical view of sanctification, which promised spiritual fullness. This Colossian heresy, whatever its precise form, clearly involved a certain mystical ascetic practice as the pathway to fullness and perfection. But according to Paul, external asceticism can never restrain the indulgence of the flesh. What then enables believers to deal with sin, to progress in sanctification? Paul roots his answer in the fact that those who have been baptized into Christ are united to him in such a way that they share in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. This new identity in union with Christ is the groundwork that the Spirit lays for adequately dealing with the continuing presence of sin on the basis of it, believers are to put off the characteristics of the old man and put on the characteristics of the new, since they have already put on the new man who's been renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. The fact of union with Christ in his death to sin and new life to God is the foundation for growth in holiness. The knowledge of it provides the motivation. So come and live believer. Unbeliever as well, but Paul is talking to believers here. Come and live out of Jesus Christ and the fullness of grace that is in him. He, the only one who can satisfy our hearts, who can change our hearts, who can bring us into communion with God now and forever. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.